Hello and welcome to the Radio Times Doctor Who podcast, brought to you by the team behind RadioTimes.com. I'm your host, Hugh Fullerton. And I'm your other host, Morgan Jeffrey. And this week we're here because the Halloween apocalypse has come. You know, uh, the flux is going to destroy us all and ruin uh, Halloween. Um, but, you know, spoiler alert, maybe it won't. Uh, because there's a new episode of Doctor Who. For the first time in quite a while, uh, we actually have a new episode to talk about, uh, which is very exciting, isn't it? It is very exciting indeed. Yep, we're going to be uh, unpacking the episode shortly. Uh, we've got interviews, behind-the-scenes interviews uh, with cast and crew coming up. And uh, we'll also, of course, be posing our controversial question of the week. Dun-dun-dun. Uh, yeah, before that, though, we've got some Who News, as in Who Knew about this Who News, uh, which is our weekly news section. Uh, we'll just sort of rattle through this a little bit quickly, because obviously I know you guys want to get to our episode review and reaction. Uh, but yeah, we have some great stuff coming out of the new edition of Radio Times, although by the time you listen to this, it might be the old edition of Radio Times, uh, which has interviews with Jodie Whittaker, Mandip Gill, John Bishop and Jacob Anderson. So we have Mandip Gill talking about the fact that you know it was a relief for Russell T. Davis to be taking over after Chris Chibnall because, you know, good to know the series is going on in safe hands. We have, um, you know, Mandip talking about the possibility of Thasmin, the uh, 13 Yasmin romance rearing its head in series 13. And, you know, we might have a little bit of evidence about that from this episode, but we'll, you know, we'll discuss that later. Um, and yeah, and generally speaking, we've also had an apology from Stephen Moffat uh, for ruining the surprise of the Weeping Angels. Though, to be fair, it has been in several trailers now, so I think everyone knows about it. And it was very exciting to see them still in this week's episode. Um, so, yeah, that was Who News. <laughs> it was just me rattling off a load of stuff. Other weeks, when you know it's a bit quieter, we'll go a bit more in-depth. But this week, we've also got to fit in the fact that um, we have an interview. And it's not just any interview. We actually have an interview with Jodie Whittaker herself, the 13th Doctor, um, which is really exciting. Uh, lovely to have her on the, have her on the podcast. So... I spoke to Jodie uh, a little while ago, and um, this interview also recently appeared on the main Radio Times podcast with Jane Garvey. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to listen to their take on the new series, you can hear that. Uh, but first, here's uh, what I, what Jodie said when I asked her when she feels like she'll no longer be the Doctor. If she's, you know, well, we know she's leaving. When she's leaving, when will she feel like she's no longer the Doctor? That's a really interesting question. I've not thought about it in those terms before, I suppose. Really, I will be the doctor until I am no longer on screen as a doctor, I suppose, but and like on a realistic sense. But I think emotionally, it will feel particularly because filming is such a pleasure, and that is that's that is the part about it that makes it you know the best job in the world is the being on set and getting to be the doctor. And I think that when it is my last day of shooting, that will certainly feel as if a huge part of my life, I suppose that chapter will be closing. But yeah, you're right. Like as far as I suppose being the doctor, I get to drag that out for as long as they put the episodes on for. So I'll be still dining out on it, love. <laughs> we have always been aware of how ace it is. Yeah. And so there isn't, I don't have that sense of, oh man, I wish, you know, that I didn't ever think that, the the best was yet to come. I was I felt like I was 
I've been in the moment of it always because I've loved it so much. And we've had so many times on set over the different seasons where we've chatted about how brilliant it is or how much fun we're having. And just that knowing that when it's done, we know we were present Mm, yeah. as much as you can be in the chaos and it is you know it's it's a mad whirlwind any film set is but this is particularly <laughs> this is particularly mad you're always someone's doctor and what a wonderful thing and what a, tr- a thing to treasure forever so i can dine out on this forever i mean you mentioned mandip there um obviously you said you and chris had this plan to leave after three series from the start did you at some point have to kind of break it to mandip that you were leaving and was it kind of an emotional moment there's part of me that could absolutely say, no, let's just do it. No, let's go back on it. But then actually you, to make this show and to commit to this show and to give the fans the the level that they deserve, it it's like you, you make that, there has to be some sacrifice in it mm. and you have to, you have to know when you've done it. And I think, it feels as if I knew, I know obviously what the storylines are. I knew what challenges Chris were going to lay ahead in a brilliant way. And as an actor, and I just felt like this was a real high. So I'd be staying for so many right reasons, but then also just to kind of cling on to something for myself, whereas actually what I'm being given is wonderful. And But yeah, I think me and Mandit will kind of, you know, be we're very much... The idea, I, I mean, I burst into tears about everything all the time. I'm so pathetic. Um, she's not much of a crier, though, you see. So mm. I am like, you yeah, better cry on the last day. <laughs> <laughs> and if she doesn't, there'll be words. But I do feel like we we have been through this from the beginning to the end together. And it feels incredibly special being side by side in that way. But we were very lucky because we got John Bishop and he has yes. been amazing. Absolutely brilliant. It's I been spoke to him early. He, I think he's ace, isn't he? Yeah, he's so nice. Yeah, he's so nice. I think he's weird as well with people like that because like when people are famous, obviously when I'd done Broadchurch, a lot of people met me and couldn't believe I didn't have a West Country accent. Yeah. You know? So it's like there's that kind of you can slightly until you know part like this, no one no no one's under any illusion what what I sound like really. But you know, in that sense, there's always bits of yourself that you don't know. But I suppose when you have somebody who is in their comedy, in their documentaries, is so open and so out there, you just, you're like, are they going to be that nice though? <laughs> <laughs> Surely it's an act and it isn't. He's a wonderful, hilarious, open-hearted, very generous like person to be on set and he came in with so much energy so much enthusiasm and it was a it was so funny lots of times because you'd just be like like really take away you know we'd be we'd be totally used to the fact that there'd be like prosthetics and you know sfx going you know a few kind of explosions down a corridor and he'd be like (laughs) madness isn't it you're like yeah it is when you stand on the outside and look in it's mad <laughs> but we just you know you're kind of just in the middle of it all and you're like no when you see it from someone else's perspective so he's kind of perfect for his character because his character is completely out of his depth and so you know in that way like john was just like kind of rabbit in headlights in a brilliant childlike way you mentioned that uh, this is obviously a serialized uh, story um, yeah. how is that kind of different to what we get normally is it a lot of cliffhangers and things like that obviously for, as you know for whovians the there's been you know, in, in different different tenures, there's old versions, there's serialisation, there's one-off episodes, standalone. Like, I, I know the entire story, but if you were to say to me now, 
So in episode five, I'm like, whoa, to me, I've got the tapestry of the entire yes. thing in my head. And I cannot wait now to see it episodically because I cannot, I can't, I can't get my head around where the breaks are and the, and it's just, so it's, it's had this rolling momentum in a really exciting way. And it's meant that beats that we've maybe have like hinted at or moments or challenges for the doctor they might take three episodes to readdress but they're going to be addressed but the but the but it's meant we've we've still done that very exciting thing that you do with Doctor Who where you go to different time periods you have different monsters you have new you have old but with it there's been a kind of collection of characters Mm-hmm. And a and a, a bubbling of a star of the storylines and 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 questions for the doctor that whether they get answered or not they the 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 building of it has felt like kind of like a slow pan on a hob mm. you know throughout and it's been so much fun to shoot because it's been months you know we're nearly at twelve months. And that was Jodie Whittaker. Uh, pretty exciting to have her on the pod. Uh, so yeah, we'll be hopefully doing more interviews with cast members and people like that in the coming weeks um, to kick off the podcasts. Uh, so, you know, watch this space. But I've talked for long enough. Morgan, let's get to it. The meat of the podcast. The reason we're all here. The Halloween apocalypse. Mm. I mean, you know, statement blanket thoughts. There's It's a lot. There is a that you know, we, we've waited a, a, a little while now for a, a new episode of Doctor Who, and this felt like it was about twelve episodes of Doctor Who, uh, all, all, all being thrown at us at once. Um, it's you know we're, we're getting fewer episodes, right? We're only getting six episodes, um, but it doesn't feel like we're being shortchanged in any way. I would say at least going off um, Halloween Apocalypse because there is so much going going on in this episode. Um, I think that that works to sort of the benefit of the episode and also possibly in some ways to its to its detriment. Um, it's incredibly fast-paced. I think the, the 50 minutes just whizzes by. Mm. Um, there's no time to get bored. It, it leaps you know, from one location to another, one time period to another. Um, but I think inevitably, with, with so much going on, so many different characters, so many different uh, locations, so many different ideas... I would imagine certain parts of the episode will appeal more to certain people than others. And I don't think necessarily everyone's going to love all the same bits and everyone's going to uh, dislike all the same bits. But I think it's it's a little bit of a mishmash of, 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 of tones and, and ideas and, and concepts. And so I think because of that, it's I think it's hard to say that I loved every single aspect of it. But I did love a lot of it, and then there were other parts of it that didn't work as well for me. So basically, Morgan's dancing around the fact here that he and I have a very pretty crucial disagreement about this episode. <laughs> Is Carvanista good or not? Um, I think Carvanista's great. Uh, I think he should be the new companion. I think Doctor Who should have more slightly bizarre dog aliens that look like they've been kind of picked up in you know toys and things. But Morgan uh, wasn't such a fan. <laughs> the soul of Doctor Who, the battle for the... Is Doctor Who, you know, flashy prosthetics, or is it a weird dog man with a northern accent? Yeah. No, like, don't get me wrong. I am I'm in no way opposed to the, 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 the sillier side of, of Doctor Who. But I think Carvanista is a, a, a teddy bear monster with a northern accent, right? And there's... <laughs> exactly. I mean, what's not to like? And that there's room for that in Doctor Who. 
But I think because uh, Halloween Apocalypse is part of this larger Flux storyline, because there's so much going on, as I say, it is a real a cavalcade of, 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 of different ideas, different stories, um, d- different tones. It's, it's as... It, it's a setup episode, right? It's setting up everything that's to unfold um, across across the the six weeks or the remaining five weeks. So you have uh, a little a little dash of the Weeping Angels in there. You have, uh, which will presumably pay off in future weeks. You have a little cameo from the Santarans, which we know is gonna um, they're gonna loom large in episode two. Um, and for me, because of that, Carvanista felt a little a little out of place, or or at least there were parts of the episode I preferred. You know, this wasn't a, a, a more comical episode where that character might have sat better mm-hmm. for me. I think it, that character sat slightly oddly when up against the scenes with the Weeping Angels, which I really loved, or the Santaran scenes, or, or the other scenes of, you know, it's, um, as you you said to me before, before we started recording, and I think Chris Chibnall has said this as well, that it's like, this, this is the first episode, but it almost has a series finale mm-hmm. feel to it. Um, and amongst all that, uh, you know, the epic nature of the episode, that character just felt a bit out of place for me. I mean, I feel like it's a little like this episode is a little like Doctor Who Tapas. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like there's something there. I'm not going to go for the squid personally. Yeah. But, you know, the patatas bravas, yum, yum, yum. No. <laughs> uh, no uh, well, uh, yeah, no, I think that's that's it, is that I think, uh, 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 may, maybe, but I think it, it, this episode will that no one or very few people are going to say I loved every single element of this episode because it is so varied and different. That being said, I think everyone will say, you know, there were bits that I preferred and bits I didn't like so much because it is so varied and different. That being said, I don't think anyone will come away from this saying I disliked all of it because there's there's so much. It's all of Doctor Who all at once, yeah. a little bit of all of Doctor Who all at once. Um, and, and and so there is a little bit of something. For, if you prefer your Doctor Who a bit more whimsical, um, you have Carvanista. If you prefer your Doctor Who to be a bit more uh, straight-laced and scary, you have those fantastic scenes with the Weeping Angels, which even though I know the whole deal with the Weeping Angels now, I must admit I did... I did actually jump at one point when they, you know, um, when, when the character blinked and they were suddenly right in her face on the doorstep when she's scrabbling around for her keys. Um, so it does give you a little bit of everything. So there is there is something for everyone in the Halloween apocalypse, I think. Definitely. I mean, the thing you said, um, which, which I said about the series finale vibe, mm. is really interesting because I think series finales are like all these things coming together and you remember them for that. You kind of don't remember it as like the episode where X happened. It's the episode that kind of tied things off. And it is quite unusual to start a series in this way. Part of the thing that interested me about it was it isn't just that like it's a big episode and there's a big threat. It's also the fact that, you know, it's a series finale in the in the series finale, all the sort of different elements of the series you've just seen come together for this big thing and there's this big threat. Whereas in this, it was like all the different elements of the series that we have yet to see came together and kind of were pulled together. So, like, we see the Sontarans, you know, who are, we know episode two at least. We see the Weepy Angels, who I think are supposed to be episode four. You know, you see Joseph Williamson, who's this, um, you know, historical eccentric uh, Liverpudlian. And I, you know, we've seen filming photos of them, uh, of the cast, you know, filming stuff in kind of period costume that would fit that kind of time. So it kind of feels like, and, you know, obviously Vinda, Jacob Anderson, who we know is going to appear in other episodes, very clearly, Claire, Annabelle Shirley's character with the Weeping Angel says, oh, I've met you before. Very like Sally Sparrow, actually, at the end mm. of Blink. But you haven't met me yet, but that's fine. Da-da-da-da-da. Um, 
it kind of is all teasing what's to come. And I thought this was quite clever. It's quite a clever way to kind of invert a sort of journey's end style finale to kick everything off. And it definitely makes it like feel really big and exciting, kind of goes all, all you know, guns blazing. I guess my sort of thing is that it means it's a lot of setup, which is fine. Mm. You know, there is also, you know, stuff happens. It isn't just setting things up. There's like consequences. But, you know, the Joseph Williamson scenes, we don't know what's going on with those. And also, you know, in an episode where you're introducing, uh, you know, a new companion in Dan, like it's quite a lot to be happening around him. But then that kind of, I think they actually do quite well to introduce him regardless, despite everything that's going on. I kind of have a sense of who he is. I mean, I don't know, what, what did you think of uh, John Bishop as Dan? Well, no, it's a really good point and, and testament to how much is going on in this episode that we've talked for about, you know, five, ten minutes, haven't even talked about the fact that there's a new companion introduced yeah, yeah, in this episode yeah. because there is so much going on. Um, no, I, I really enjoy John Bishop as Dan. I think, I think you're right. I think even though uh, the way in which the character is introduced is slightly unusual in the sense of the, the introduction of the character is not not especially the focus of the episode, or at least not the only focus, because again, it has about 12 things that it's trying to focus on all at once. Um, that being said, I think the, the way in which the character is introduced, you, you kind of get to, you get a feel for who he is um, and, and what he's about quite quickly. Um, I think it helps that yeah, John Bishop is is playing an amiable scouser. So like he's, you know, with a quick wit. So he's- The he's, range. <laughs> you know, but he's, you know, he's not playing something hugely out outside of his, no. his his wheelhouse. He's playing a little bit on his public persona. So you kind of, if you know John Bishop, you kind of feel like you already know Dan a little bit as well, which I think helps with the, kind of easing the character into, into the universe. Um, and I think, I think he comes across really well. I also think... Uh, I think some people were saying, is he just going to be um, Graham Mark II? Um, I guess, you know, him and uh, John Bishop and Bradley Walsh, both actors, but they've come from light entertainment sort of backgrounds, comedy backgrounds. And is it just going to be like another character like Graham? But actually, I think uh, Chris Chibnall does well to distinguish uh, Dan from Graham. He's a bit more, I think you use the word chippy. Yes. Um, <laughs> he's a bit more sarcastic. Um, not quite so much, just give me a deck chair and a sandwich. Um, and I also think, because I know... That people have talked about, you know, is is three companions too many? Um, did they all get like enough screen time and enough development? Um, and then in bringing Dan in, is Yaz still going to get kind of like a fair a fair shake of it? Um, and actually, I think it it does work really well having just the Doctor and Yaz. Yeah, in Mark, the episode worked, I was really impressed with that. Actually, like the, the feels like the not to talk move away from Dan but I felt like the dynamic between them was much more interesting in this episode yeah. it was a bit more we've seen hints of it before but, but kind of quite combative I was saying the doctor was almost treating Yaz like a mob wife you know <laughs> yeah. like don't I treat you right don't I give you the fine things <laughs> yeah. you know roof over your head you know yeah. and Yaz's like please just open up tell me about you know whatever you're doing and the yeah. doctor's still won't and they're getting quite snippy with each other like doc, the doctor's like oh I don't have to tell you absolutely everything I think of actually yeah. yes you know yeah. the old married um, couple vibe yeah and but, then and then Dan slots right into that right and yeah not only that but I think even though I think they work really well, the Doctor and Yaz as, as a duo, but then even when you throw Dan into the mix, um, Yaz doesn't lose any of her agency because now she's not the kind of the wide-eyed newcomer in awe of the Doctor. Not only is she a bit more established with the Doctor, but she's the established traveller, so she can almost take on the Doctor role a little bit with Dan, and she's she's the veteran, and she can kind of you know say you know he's now the kind of um, <laughs> calling John Bishop the wide-eyed ingenue, but yeah, he's, no, he, he is, yeah. he's, he's he's the newcomer aboard the TARDIS, and so. Yaz is a bit more um, experienced, and I, so I think that that dynamic really works well as well. I mean, she flies the TARDIS, co-pilot um, officially, no. co-pilot. She, you know, uses alien tech in the episode to get him free. Um, yeah, she's. It's nice to see her feel a bit more like kind of 
I don't know. What, what's the word I'm looking for? She's got a bit more get up and go, maybe. A, a bit more driven. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. It feels like she's less in the Doctor's shadow, I Definitely. think, I think now. Um, um, and for any, you know, Thasmin fans, um, they're, you know, they're, all we're going to say is, you know, we don't know what's going on, whether they're going to have a romantic, you know, thing in this series. I suspect not because they haven't really, you know, teased it. But the Doctor and Yaz do have a mattress in the TARDIS for some reason. Look, it, all I'm saying is in that in that pre-titles when they they go flying into the TARDIS and they land on a conveniently placed mattress that's placed in the TARDIS. Why is there a mattress in the TARDIS console room? I don't know. I'll leave it up to your own imaginations. Yeah. I mean, maybe they were planning this exact, you know, escape, but it seemed pretty haphazard. Um, I did quite like, you know, Yaz obviously being quite frustrated with the Doctor in terms of just like getting them into trouble and kind of, it was, it felt like that was quite like a, almost like a Matt Smith characteristic, you know, like of kind of blundering into trouble and then like, you know, the companion having to sort of, well, you know, deal with that. But that's, but that's something else that's interesting about the Halloween apocalypse as well, in terms of the story structure. Not only is it, um, it does its, is it the series opener and it's setting up about, you know, so many different storylines with, uh, with with Claire and the Weeping Angels and uh, and, 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 and the, t- the mysterious tunnels that Williamson is, is digging and and, and and the swarm and the swarm sister and all and all these different things, um, but but also on top of that, it kind of it picks up the Doctor's story uh, sort of sort of halfway through. Like we, we open and the Doctor is already um, on this sort of hunt for Carvanista, looking for more answers about the division. So you've got that storyline rattling through the whole thing as well. Yeah, and I'm quite interested because, you know, obviously The Timeless Children was quite a long time ago now. Uh, some of our listeners may have forgotten exactly what the revelations were. I rewatched it recently. Uh, might be worth doing the same if you haven't already. Um, but yeah, basically, you know, the Doctor, in the last thing we saw her in, which was Revolution of the Daleks, decided, no, I'm going to investigate my missing memories. You know, I have these lives. I worked for essentially the Time Lord CIA, the Division. I don't remember that. I have versions of myself that, you know, I don't remember have been removed from my memories. So I'm going to track down, you know, any information about that. And, you know, we find out later on Carvanista is an ex-member of this uh, Time Lord CIA, the Division, um, you know, which is kind of interesting in terms of clearly they're not all Time Lords or, you know, whatever they're, Gallifreyans, whatever, um, which kind of also slightly irons out a few wrinkles in Fugitive of the Jadoon from last, not to get too granular, but um, I rewatched that recently and I was still very confused by Lee and like, how he fitted in because he was human or was he human? They hire humans. They hire m- man, bear, dog things. Lupari, I believe. E- e- yeah, Lup- Lupari. They're, yeah. They're, they're equal opportunity employers. The Time Lords for all their for all their flaws. Yeah, exactly. You know, g- good bunch of guys. You know, they've got some good people in HR. Um, yeah, and so then basically, yeah, that's what the Doctor's doing, and that's why she's going after Carvanista, and she kind of is sort of almost stumbles upon this thing with the flux, which she doesn't know about. She's quite confused. She doesn't know about it. A little like again, like Matt Smith in. Um, you know, the 11th hour where he doesn't know about the cracks in time, you know, like some this thing that sort of jumped up. Um, but also the Division stuff feeds into, you know, this new villain Swarm, who Chris Chibnall kind of teased as his one word clue of the season. And, you know, I don't think I appreciated that how big a part he was going to be in this episode. So we kind of meet him. He's on a sort of, you know, one of those impregnable space prisons, you know, built for one guy at great expense. And then some guards turn up and then the guy immediately breaks out. You know, very it's very like you see it in like cartoons and things or like Kung Fu Panda had it, you know. <laughs> um, and then these two people come along who clearly work for the division. They've got they've got the same uh, guns, weapons that we see in Fugitive of a Jadoon. And then Swarm specifically says, you know, uh, a reward for lifetime service to the division. Ha 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 ha. But yeah, Swarm's one of these sort of like big 
about alien guys. He's been in this prison since the dawn of time or, you know, the dawn of the universe, whatever, one of, very long ago. And then for some reason this time he gets out because something malfunctions or something. And he kind of, uh, he absorbs, he kills one of them in his sort of like ashy way. And then he absorbs the other one and says, ah, I am renewed. I mean, his appearance kind of changes. Mm. And so this is interesting because I was kind of like, you know, first watch, I'm like, oh, he's just sort of sucked the life force in, made himself look a bit different, a bit more human-like, a bit skull, a bit like the Red Skull or something. But I am also wondering whether, like, because it's the Division who are like the Time Lord police, and we've sort of seen these takes on regeneration, and specifically the way he goes, I am renewed. It kind of makes me think, like, was that supposed to be a kind of regeneration? Mm. Because obviously it didn't have the kind of gold light effect, but, you know, that has changed over the course of a series anyway. And it was the word renewed, like, mm. because that is, you know... In Fugitive of the Jadoon, they kind of had Joe Martin's doctor say, you know, call the TARDIS her ship, which was something William Hartnell used to say. Yeah. And similarly, the William Hartnell, Patrick Troughton regeneration was called a renewal. Yeah, Patrick Troughton says, I've I've, I've been renewed. Yeah. Um, and regeneration, that term wasn't actually introduced to the series till much later. Yeah, so that felt to me like maybe that was a, a similar nod from Chris Chibnall that we're supposed to kind of see the sort of, you know, the kind of, I don't know, the slang of uh, the Time Lords being a bit dated. Time Lord Lingo. Time Lord Lingo uh, in that same way. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think that maybe we're supposed to think maybe he's Time Lord. I mean, I know he's obviously kind of alien looking, but there's no reason the Time Lords have to look human. You know, they could, he could generate it between two different alien species. Well, what I thought is is potentially, uh, I, first of all, I think it's really interesting. It's a really good idea um, from Chris Chibnall. Yeah, if, if, there are whole swathes of the Doctor's past that she doesn't remember. Um, it, it's, it's a really kind of obvious but really good idea to um, reintroduce the Doctor's greatest nemesis that we never knew, mm. um, which is the Swarm. That that she just you know she she doesn't remember the Swarm, but um, he definitely remembers her. And they're they're like they're great nem nemeses. He, he was almost like maybe like the Master before the Master, or, yeah. um, and she just has has no memory. Um, and then they have this you know, long-standing feud. Um, and of course, there's all the questions now post-timeless children about the Doctor's um, origins, and she's not actually from Gallifrey. She's a member of some other race that had presumably re regeneration, uh, the ability to regenerate. Um, could the Swarm be from that race? And that's how the Swarm knows the Doctor, or or from some other race, a, perhaps a rival alien race, and that's why the Swarm considers the Doctor uh, their enemy, and they were two alien races, you know, feuding over the power of regeneration. Who knows? You know, pure speculation. But like all those questions um, are certainly sort of raised by the Halloween apocalypse. So is it? I, I I read it as by the way that like Swarm is like the guy, yeah, and then like, but is it also the species? Do you think? Who knows? I, I think he is. He is. Swarm, the swarm, and because she, because his sister's called Azure, right, or something. Right. Roshenda Sandal, obviously, who kind of is sort of, she gets a signal, and then like kind of they beat, they smash it up, yeah, and the signal kind of sort of hangs around, and then yeah. Swarm turns up, kills her, yeah. her other half, who is someone you recognize. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah the, the the guy who's hanging out with uh, Roshenda Sandal is uh, played Lloyd in the original Demon Headmaster on CBBC. So I love, I, I personally enjoyed that little cameo. Um, you'll find that we're struggling to dissect the Halloween apocalypse, mostly because we have no idea what's going on at this stage. Yeah, because like. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm a little bit like, because I was like, you know, with my little pet Time Lord theory, was that a kind of she's been shielded and now she's woken up to... Ah, uh, like, like the like the world. Yeah, but it, it, but it looked quite different. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. But then it could have been like some sort of like 
thing that changed her appearance as well. Yeah, so she could hide she's, out. She's gone through some sort of advanced version of the uh, the, the, the old um, you know the watch, the yeah, the fob watch, the, the, the chameleon, um, chameleon arch. arch. That's, that's it. it. Yeah. Um, or you know, like you say, maybe they're this other race. But it's interesting that she sort of. I was wondering, did that warning come from you know the prison saying, "Uh oh, he's escaped"? Did it come from him being like? What up, sis? I'm going to come pick you up. And then when she turns back, she's like, oh, thank you. But I'm like, you know, is that because she has like an evil side that is grateful? Or is it because, you know, she actually, you know, her evil side is her true self. It's been suppressed. It's all a bit up in the air. But yeah, it's interesting to see. I mean, we kind of weirdly, I think we all speculated that Rashenda Sandal was going to be that character mm. um, from the pictures. And, you know, we're right. But also they released photos of her in like a nice jumper, just looking normal. So we we're a bit confused. But yeah, so... It's interesting, they don't really do very much in this episode. Like, Swarm kind of just calls the Doctor out. Like, says, hey, you know, I'm going to fight you. I remember all the times we fought before. You don't. Loser. And then he just sort of zips off. And then the flux is happening. But that's already happening. It's something like the Sontarans know about it. Like, the uh, was it the Lupuri? The, yeah, the, the dog yeah, Lupari, aliens. Yeah. They, Lupari, that's it. They know about it. Um, and it's best surprise the Doctor doesn't. And it's like, is that related to Swarm? Is it like something that's happened anyway? All we see is like this sort of big space, like cloud devouring stuff. Vinda, who is like a sort of Jacob Anderson's character. Again, look, there's so many characters to talk about. He just sort of is watching something. Not very much is happening at his outpost. Then suddenly this thing comes through, destroys a load of planets. And he's like, ah. But I'm like, did someone know that was maybe going to happen? Is that why he was watching over it? You know, or is it just a whole network of these people? We have a lot more questions than we have answers at this stage, <laughs> in short. But that's that's the point, right? It's, ep it's episode one. Why is well, why is Azure, why is uh, the sister of Swarm just John Bishop's date just absolutely giving him like giving her like the worst night? Not only was the late Dan Lewis, did he not he, he didn't show up. You, you made him sound like he's just dead. <laughs> the late Dan Lewis. Yeah, yeah. That's what she calls him, the late Dan Lewis. Oh, does she? Sorry, yeah. sorry. Because um, I guess because it's his nickname because he's always late. Um, not only does he not show up for their drink, but then she gets sucked into some sort of haunted house with, with billowing smoke and, and then, then she's being haunted by Swarm and his sister. So... So again, what's going on there? We just don't know. It's all it's it's pretty much all set up and and very little payoff this episode. But it's that's the whole point, right? Is that it's um, flux is this serialized story, um, and then it's going to play out over the remaining weeks. Yeah, and we do get some, you know, we get like a big cliffhanger. We get like yeah. you know they do save the Earth. Um, they surround it with ships, like something from Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> Although we were we were questioning a like, what does that mean for the moon? Because they just cover the Earth, and like so, the Moon's gone, so all our ties are messed up. Um, and then also, you know, why the Lupari have this technology to like build? Oh yeah, we just you know made this fleet of you know uh, flux-proof ships. Like, just make everything out of that. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like the black yeah. box in there. Just make yeah. everything out of it. Well, and also the Lupari ships can stand up to the flux, but a TARDIS can't. Yeah. Which, which maybe the Lupari have even more. Uh, <laughs> I just love the idea that like these, these you know, these basically like, overgrown Ewoks have more advanced technology than the Time Lords, but who backer? But may, but maybe, um, but again, maybe that ties into um, the you know the division and, and the Lupari's links to the division and and why they have such advanced technology that can withstand the flux. Uh, who knows? Again, more questions, Hugh. More questions. So yeah, we have a lot of questions, uh, some of which we have already written about on RadioTimes.com, so you can check those out, some of which are unanswered on RadioTimes.com. And yeah, feel free to let us know what you think. Um, I'm excited for the rest of the series, I think. Um, next week uh, looks like a bit more of a traditional episode in that it's set in other historical locations with aliens added in, you know, Crimean War, celebrity historical style stuff with Mary Seacole, played by Sarah Powell. Um, and, you know, we think that maybe, presumably, there'll be serialized elements like, you know, 
the Swarm guy and maybe Vinda. I think Vinda is supposed to be in episode two, so maybe we'll kind of keep seeing those little side plots. But I don't know whether it will be quite as jumping around as this first episode. No. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I feel like... Um... Well, may, maybe, but I, you know, from the next time trail, like you say, episode two feels a little more uh, traditional. It feels looks like it's set mostly in uh, one location. It's the kind of the pseudo historical with the Santarans back in the is the Crimean War, and it's as you say, it's a sort of celebrity historical. We're on slightly more familiar ground. Um, maybe after this, the, the, the wild roller coaster that was the Halloween apocalypse, it's, it had to do so much setup, had to throw all these ingredients like, into the pot and give them a big stir and see what happens. Um, now maybe like we'll, we'll, the, the remaining weeks will be sort of paying off everything that this first episode set up. So it'll be some Tarans and then it'll be Weeping Angels and we'll kind of get all of these answers um, unfolding. So I think it'll probably be quite a satisfying series in that way. This was just kind of like a, uh, a, a mind-blowing opener and we, we've got so many questions and then it's all going to be uh, paid off uh, across the coming weeks. And I think if it does settle down slightly in that way and, and if it's structured in that way, it will... Uh, it, it, it'll feel a bit more cohesive than the Halloween apocalypse, which again, I did really enjoy parts of, but not all of it worked for me simply because it was so it was so uh, varied and, and such a mixed bag in that way. I do wonder the extent to which, um, you know, each episode will have its own individual identity versus which we'll just see it as part of the whole. Because in, you know, serialized episodes like uh, Line of Juicy, say, I, I keep going back to that one, you know, there are certain episodes where we're like, oh, wow, remember that episode when X happened? But some episodes aren't like that because they're just like, they things are ticking along. And so I'll be interested to see, because Doctor Who episodes are always incredibly distinctive. Yeah. Um, I'll be interested to see how they kind of marry that. I'm like, I'm, I'm you know, relatively optimistic about it, I think. But, well, you know, I'll be interested. I, I, I think the, the episodes will feel, within Flux, will feel quite distinct. I think the fact that they're giving them individual episode titles, so we know now that... Uh, episode one obviously was the Halloween apocalypse. Episode two is War of the Sontarans. I think the fact that they're giving them those individual story titles, um, and from what we've seen of episode two, it does imply that they will each feel quite distinct while mm -hmm. still being part um, of this of this larger arc. Just to um, throw a little classic Who reference in there, but like it feels a little bit like where Trial of a Time Lord was, you know, this one fourteen part story, but within that you had um, almost like un unofficial. Um, uh, subdivisions of, of, of stories with um, Mind Warp and Terror, the Vervoids and Mysterious Planet and so on. I think it'll kind of break down in that in that sense that um, Flux is is one story, but you'll also have six distinct stories with it within that. Definitely, yeah. I mean, you know, or maybe it will all be like this episode. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, or maybe it's all going to be as absolutely madcap as the Halloween apocalypse was with so much going on all at once. A little bit of everything all at once. Yeah, but we'll see. We'll see either way. Uh, starting next week, uh, where we'll be back with another review of War of the Sontarans. But before that, uh, before we leave you, it's time for our regular segment, Controversial Question of the Week. I have since um, last week, in my hubris, I joked that the uh, you know podcast team would have to create a jingle at my whim. Uh, little did I know that I ended up having to do some of that. So, you know, more for me. But it's time for Controversial Question of the Week. Controversial question of the week. Um, yeah, so obviously last week uh, we asked, you know, who is not your favourite doctor, who's the best doctor? Um, and, you know, we had a lot of fun responses for that. A lot of people were saying, you know, they agreed with us about Patrick Troughton. Mm -hmm. uh, some people, you know, were still saying, you know, Tom Baker's the classic. Uh, but, you know, I, to be honest, people were pretty convinced by you, Morgan. People were... 
I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty convincing guy. I'm, I'm a great orator. What can I say? Yeah. <laughs> but this week, the controversial question, you know, maybe even more divisive. Who knows? Um, in honor of the Halloween apocalypse, full of monsters and Halloween in general, we were asking for this week's controversial question: What is the least scary, scary monster? Mm. So, in w- by which we mean a monster that is intended to be scary in Doctor Who, but just kind of falls flat. Um, so it's a tricky one because obviously, if you look back at the classic series, a lot of monsters now look quite dumb because you know they were kind of bit more basic than what we'd have now. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to go for something from the modern series, just off the top of my head. Mm. I'm thinking the thing that maybe stands out for me is the dregs because, Ooh. well, I like the dregs, but they were really built up. Do you know what yeah, I mean? It, yeah. be, people might forget this, but in the sort of pre-Series 12 like thing, everyone's like, oh, it's the scariest monsters we've ever had. Oh, my God, you're going to lose it with these monsters. And we were all like, oh, wow, you know, going to be great, you know, the new Weeping Angels. And then the dregs are just kind of like angry muscle monsters you go quite a lot you know and they're fine and they're quite fun yeah but they're not like chilling do you know what i mean they're sort of more like you're being chased by a big muscly guy which is scary but it's not like creepy <laughs> i mean depending on the guy um so yeah i i you know i feel like that's maybe an example um i can't really think of like i the waters of mars is an episode that was like build as scary yeah and those are pretty scary yeah yeah well, I, I thought you were going to be like, I'm not scared of those those terrifying ghouls it dri- dribbling. They, it was the way they ran. <laughs> kind of ruined it. But, but like, yeah, no, inferior, I like those. But I'm trying to think of episodes where it was like, Builders, like, really scary, and then I wasn't yeah, so sure. sure. That's kind of one of the only ones I can think of. Yeah. I mean, the giant spiders were probably scary if you're scared of spiders, but I'm not. I mean, I don't know. Do, do you have anything in mind? I, I've been thinking about this since you posed the question, and I think, for me, the obvious answer is Daleks. Mm. Because Daleks are always held up as the scariest Doctor Who monster. They always win who's the scariest uh, Doctor Who monster polls. And whenever people talk about hiding behind the sofa, it's always from the Daleks. Um, And I like the Daleks. I love the Daleks. Always happy to... I'm never bored of the Daleks. Always happy to see a a new Dalek story. Um, But I don't think they're scary. Mm -hmm. Like, they're, they're, they're almost fun. And I think there are other Doctor Who, classic Doctor Who monsters that are genuinely scary. Like I was saying in, uh, in Halloween Apocalypse, the scenes of uh, 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 the Weeping Angels, even though you know they're shtick by now, uh, you know, the whole don't, don't blink gimmick, um, they're still really effective and really scary. And you know, um, and Cybermen, okay, like the the way in which they're portraying the execution isn't always um, you know, spine chilling, but the idea of the Cybermen I think is really scary. Um, I think in uh, in uh, World of Nothing Time, Doctor Falls, you kind of saw that. Played out to that its was a very good way of making the Cybermen scary. Again. Yeah, yeah, it played out to its full chilling effect where a companion actually get Bill actually gets turned into a Cyberman. It's like body horror. It's really unsettling and horrible. Pain, pain, this, yeah. pain. Right? Yeah. Daleks don't really have that. They just sort of turn up and shoot you, which is, you know, obviously scary, but they're a bit... Yeah, they, just, they, don't, they, they don't send a chill down the spine, the Daleks. They're just... They're, they're more like grunts. Do you know what I mean? Like they're 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 they're, 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 they're kind of fun bad guys. Uh, well, it's all like the master or something. And like, the master's not scary. The master's just like oh, everyone loves the master. It's like and everyone loves the Daleks because it's very design classic. Mm. And you know they say the funny catchphrase. Not funny, but they say their catchphrase. Yeah. And it's like it's like this is a threat. You know they're yeah. famous. Like there's a reason they've put them in all of Jodie Whittaker's New Year's specials, right? Yeah, the Daleks. Dalek. And you know rumor has it maybe again this time, um, but. Yeah, they are. I know what you mean. I'd not really thought about it. It's a very, very controversial answer. To contra- the Daleks are rubbish, says Morgan Jeffrey. Wow. Again, yeah, out of context. No, not great. Brilliant monsters. 
not scary. Not no. sca- not sca- never been scared by a Dalek. Been scared by weeping angels. Been slightly unsettled by by Cybermen. Uh, even classic series Silurians. Mm. Uh, you know, I found I found quite creepy. Um, the maggots from the Green Death. The maggots. Like, there's so many great examples of like monsters that are scary or or just a little bit creepy or they make you they, ooh, they make, give you know give you the shivers. Daleks don't do that. They're I don't think they're necessarily trying to do that. They're not trying no, to be... No, but people do... I think... I do wonder if that's whether it's people saying it about the show rather than the show saying it in terms mm-hmm. of, like, people definitely are like, oh, the Daleks, like you say, hiding behind the sofa. I'm a bit like, does the show suggest they're supposed to be, like, creepy like that? Like, I don't... They're sort of, like... It, within the... You get why people are frightened of them in the show, mm-hmm. but we, as, like, people at home, aren't that frightened of them. Yeah. Like, I don't know how you maybe change that unless you did, like, something like Dalek but kind of made it a bit more, like being pursued by a Dalek. I mean, but the reason the Weeping Angels are scary is because you kind of relate. You kind of are like, God, what would I do in that situation? Mm-hmm. With the Daleks, you're like, die, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, it's not really like, oh no, it's gonna. It's like, uh, you know, it was going to get me or it's not at this stage. Yeah, and and and, and something that like that, that, that creeps and then jumps and 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 like the weeping angel that, that's inherently kind of horrific and scary. Daleks are just tanks; they just sort of like plow through, which uh, of course is scary in its own way. But they're just this like huge destructive force. It's not it's not unsettling in the same way. It's like a tank, yeah, like, literally like a tank. A tank. In a terms tank. of it's like if a t- tank isn't scary on its own, like in context, it would be quite scary. Yeah. If you just see a tank, yeah. you're sort of like, oh, it's a tank. Yeah, <laughs> but a tank coming at you down the street. Yeah, scary. Yeah, no. So, so D- Daleks, great, brilliant, possibly the best Doctor Who monsters, but not scary. Well, there you have it. Uh, a constant answer for controversial question of the week. Do you agree with us? Do you think uh, you know the Daleks are less frightening than they should be? or than they're presented to be? Or do you think, you know, you'll be jumping behind the sofa when they next appear? Uh, let us know, uh, whether you want to, um, on whether that's, you know, on Twitter, at Radio Times, or you can comment on, you know, YouTube. I think a bit of this is going to be on YouTube. So, yeah, um, we will be back next week with another instalment of the Doctor Who podcast from RadioTimes.com, uh, where we'll be reviewing War of the Sontarans, um, and we'll have another interview, uh, and we'll have more news uh, and another controversial question uh, so it's all very exciting until then uh, I've been Hugh Fullerton I've been Morgan Jeffrey and we're both about to get exterminated for blaspheming against the might of the Dalek Empire all hail goodbye thanks for listening to our Doctor Who podcast make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode and for more brilliant Doctor Who content check out radiotimes.com 